This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Jonathan Rauch and David Blankenhorn. David Blankenhorn is founder and president of the Institute for American Values. His books include The Future of Marriage and Fatherless America. Jonathan Rausch is a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution and a journalist. He's author of Gay Marriage, Why It is Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America. I spoke with him on October 10, 2012, at a public event at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs of the University of Minnesota. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. I'd like to welcome you all for joining us here in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, and all of you watching live online. On Being is recording this event for radio broadcast, and you'll be able to watch the video again at onbeing.org. America is riven by a number of different types of tensions and divisions, party and ideology among them. Those divisions are sorting where we live, what we do, who we talk to, and what we think. Indeed, it's changing how we think. You might think of the process of coming to a decision as a cognitive one, where we move from gathering facts to some sort of judgment. We're now finding that our pre-existing beliefs and attitudes are actually driving our perception of fact and the way the world works. And this is having dangerous and significant consequences for meaningful communication. Communication in which reason, reflection, dialogue are all integral components. The costs are high. Misperception, inflated fears, lost opportunities for shared gains, and the loss of the kind of community that many of us seek, community in which there is respect and acknowledgement of difference because it exists, in which there is a moral dialogue that is guided by virtue and possibility and the search for a broader common good. Today's conversation, The Future of Marriage, with Jonathan Rausch and David Blankenhorn, is the fourth and final public event in On Being's Civil Conversations Project. These conversations are taking on dynamics that epitomize the present chasms in American civil life, budgetary and economic crisis, politically engaged Christian action, values that clash around abortion, and today's topic, same-sex marriage. Taken together, these conversations are culling diverse wisdom on the state of American democracy and civil society in divided times. A wonderful group of public policy centers are participating in this effort, including the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance here at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. We're joined by the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., and the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. Now, just a few uh, comments about the uh, Q&A session. In about 45 minutes, we're going to open up the floor for questions and comments. For those of you in the auditorium, you should have received a blank card in the program that was handed out to you on the way in. We'll be walking around and collecting your questions midway through the conversation. For those of you watching online, 
Go to onbeing.org slash ccp and enter your questions in our live blogging forum or via Twitter. Please use the hashtag CCP2012 and address it to at being tweets. And yes, for those of you here, please feel free to tweet. We just ask that you mute your electronic device. We don't want to embarrass you by having to turn around and stare at you. One last qu- request. Since we're recording this event for broadcast, we ask that you stay in your seats for an extra minute or two at the end of the conversation in case anything needs to be re-recorded. And now to introduce our panel. It's a great pleasure to introduce Krista Tibbet, a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster and New York Times best-selling author. She is the creator and host of On Being, which airs on more than 250 public radio stations across the country. Joining Krista is Jonathan Rausch, one of the country's most respected and original writers on government, public policy, and gay marriage. He won the 2005 National Magazine Award for Columns and Commentary, the 2010 National Headliner Award for Magazine Columns. He's a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor of National Journal and The Atlantic. His latest book is Gay Marriage, Why It Is Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America. Also joining the panel is David Blankenhorn, president of the Institute for American Values. It's a nonpartisan organization devoted to strengthening families and civil society in the United States and the world. Mr. Blankenhorn is the author of Fatherless America and the Future of Marriage. Please welcome this remarkable panel. Thanks to Larry and everyone at the Humphrey School. This has been such a great adventure. And I think it's just the beginning of something. We'll do it again. Uh, A question on which we focus and fight is that of legalizing gay marriage. We're going to make that question subordinate this hour to a broader reality that in 2012, a majority of Americans across our partisan and religious divides favor some kind of legal and social recognition for gay couples. In his 2007 book, The Future of Marriage, even as David Blankenhorn argued against gay marriage as a social good, he wondered what would it take for our collective confrontation with this issue to become redemptive rather than divisive? I love that question. And it's a guiding question I'd like to stay close to in the discussion we're about to have. It's a question both Jonathan Rausch and David Blankenhorn have pursued even when they've disagreed across the years, and as they've each evolved their own positions, their public voices, and their roles in their communities. From very different directions, at times, they've argued that this is a moment of opportunity for all of us, gay and straight, liberal and conservative, to re-examine the deepest meaning of marriage. Jonathan Rausch is a lifelong journalist and also a gay man who believes that marriage equality for gays and lesbians can strengthen the value of institutional marriage for everyone. He honors the sanctity and social sense of this tradition as he's known to complain more than many of the straight people he talks to. (laughs) David Blankenhorn became known, in the words of the prominent gay writer Andrew Sullivan, as the most intellectually honest, non-homophobic opponent of marriage equality. 
David Blankenhorn testified against gay marriage in California's tumultuous Proposition 8 debate. But in the summer of 2012, he announced a change of direction. My intention is to try something new, he wrote in the New York Times. Instead of fighting gay marriage, I'd like to help build new coalitions bringing together gays who want to strengthen marriage with straight people who want to do the same. Their friendship is, I think, a model of that coalition. So let's explore it. And I want to start with you, Jonathan. Um, Where did you grow up, by the way? Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. So I wonder if you would tell a story that you write about of this vivid memory that stays with you from childhood when you had, as you describe it, this realization that the institution of marriage was not there for you. Hmm. I still remember. I'm, I'm sitting on a piano bench. I'm maybe 10, 9, 10. It's uh, at that point another 15 years before I'll understand that I'm gay or acknowledge that I'm gay and another few years before the crushes and the um, very obvious symptoms of sexuality emerge. But long before any of that happens, I understand that for some reason I'll never be able to get married and have a family. And I don't know why that is, but I know I'm different. Years before I know I'm gay, I know that this destination for my love won't be there for me. Um, and you, you take your readers in, in, in your book on gay marriage to this thought experiment. Um, what if you woke up one day and marriage didn't exist anymore? Yeah, yeah. When I, when I talk about this, I try to always start there with the moral imagination of asking people, you know, most of you people here, you're straight. A lot of you are married. Imagine that your marriage went away, and I don't mean that you got divorced. I mean that you never got married, never could marry, never had the prospect of marrying. Imagine what that does to your life today, and imagine what it does when you're growing up. You know, when you're 8 or 9 or 12, the first kiss, the first crush, the first date, all of this is leading to family formation and marriage and a home, and you don't have any of that. And imagine how much more barren your life is, and that's what that was like. I mean, you wrote, um, you kind of draw out this thought experiment, and you say, what is this community, your world, this world in which marriage has disappeared? What is that like? More unstable than the one you were accustomed to before your Kafkaesque metamorphosis, no doubt. Probably less healthy, less happy, perhaps full of sex, but not as full of love. It is a world of fragile families, a world marked by heightened fear of loneliness or abandonment in old age, a world in some respects not civilized because marriage is the foundation of civilization. Here's a story that's not in the book. Um, So I'm 25 and I'm on the verge of finally acknowledging to myself and the world that I'm gay after all those years of twisting and tormenting myself to deny it. And I remember I'm in the kitchen, actually, cleaning the floor. It's always something trivial, isn't it? And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to be gay. I don't want to be gay. I don't want to be gay. And the reason for that, it's not that I'm homophobic or anti-gay. It's that it's 1985, and being gay means I'm condemned to a world, I think, of anonymous sex and late-night bars and poppers and AIDS and early death. And that's not what I wanted. Um, so, David, you were born in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I wonder how you would trace the earliest roots of your imagination about marriage, but also um, your civilizational imagination, if, you know, if we want to follow on with David, how David is putting those things together. 
I was born in 1955, you know, so the big thing for me was the civil rights movement, you know, growing up in the South. That was the kind of morally paradigmatic experience for me. I think it kind of shaped a lot of Mm -hmm. that in the little church I grew up in, the little Presbyterian church, you know. Um, I don't remember. Marriage I took for granted. I didn't know. I don't think I knew anybody whose parents were divorced. I I had no concept about anything about gay anything, Mm -hmm. you know, except to learn ugly words, you know, a few ugly words that I didn't really understand. We were too busy... We were too busy with the whole race issue to, you know, there's only so much, right. <laughs> you know what I mean, at one time. So we were busy struggling about the race issue. That was what shaped me more than anything. Um, and then you've also talked about being formed by your work as a VISTA volunteer a little bit later on in early adulthood. And that, that, also, that was a moment, I think, where you started to think about families, right? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, coming out of the uh, the South and... <clears throat> thinking a lot about the civil rights movement as a kind of a model for me. I wanted to, I studied labor history in graduate school, and I studied, um, I wanted to go into either labor or community organizing. So I went in, I was a VISTA volunteer, and then I spent five years as a community organizer in Virginia and in um, Massachusetts. And, um, you know, we would... Oh, you know, it was kind of the Saul Alinsky model of community organizing. So we were always picketing City Hall because there weren't enough city service deliveries in poor neighborhoods. Or we were fussing at the utility company executives because the utility rates were too high. But if you live in poor communities and you, you know, these are your friends and neighbors and the people you're working with every day. I was struck by the kind of hollowing out of the civil society and so many children growing up without fathers, and just the kind of breakdown, the kind of DNA of the civil society, mm-hmm. particularly the issue of father absence. And so when I decided to do something else, I wanted to get at issues that were deeper than city service delivery, deeper than utility rate. You know, those are important issues, but I thought that community organizing these these communities were just getting weaker and weaker all the time. And I, I believe that it was because of this more fundamental breakdown. So that's what really got me interested in the subject of the role of men in families and the role of marriage. That's what God, that's what, that's what, you know, mm-hmm. that's what turned it for me. So a story that I didn't really know until I started reading about your work and your history is that especially in the 80s and 90s, there was a flood of research, and you became part of that, research and writing and thinking about how marriage matters, how intact families matter. Um, uh, there was, so there was this movement to, to support the flourishing of marriage and, and also to work against what felt to you like a movement, an idea that fathers were superfluous or disposable, um, you founded the Institute for American Values in 1987. You helped found the National Fatherhood Initiative in 1994. And that was happening, and it was big, and there were a lot of people involved in it. And then the issue of gay marriage kind of landed in the middle of that. Um, and, I, and I wonder if you would just talk, and you know, we will talk about, about your 
your change of direction a little bit later, but I, I want to hear how at that point in that context, it seems to me that as gay marriage landed in that, it seemed like something that might continue the transformation that you were working against of marriage as a purely privatized relationship. Yeah, you know, I, that was the time for me during that period of time in the late 80s and 90s, and, and that was the time when I was just wandering around the country, you know, uh, speaking, and, and I was like a fatherhood jukebox, you know, like, you know, you didn't even have to put a nickel in. I would just give <laughs> you a talk about how children needed their fathers and that father absence was the most biggest problem of our generation because it was the problem driving all the other problems. My, my son used to come with me, and now he, he still he started mimicking me. He would say, "We are living in an increasingly fatherless society." You know, he would, you know, because he like he had this. He he knew the speech as well as I did. And um, marriage is the way that connects men to fatherhood because you know mothers and their children. There's such a bond between the mother and child. The mother doesn't need anyone's permission. The mother doesn't have to audition for this role. She has it. She claims that it's the strongest bond in the human she species. She doesn't get to audition either. She does. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. But fathers are different. You know, fathers need the cooperation of the mother to be a father. And, and the way we do that is we, we have that arrangement. It's called marriage. And so I was a, I was a fatherhood nut, and then I was a marriage nut, and... A few people here were, were workers with me during Other that period of time, you know. And um, we weren't given a single thought to gay anything. This was just what we were doing, trying to strengthen this institution that protected children. So when the, the gay marriage issue came along, um, I first tried to avoid it. Spent years not trying to talk about because I knew it was divisive and I didn't want to. It seemed like a t- side issue. I didn't take it that seriously. Um, um, eventually, in the early 2000s, got drawn into it a bit. Um, got all tangled up when I met Jonathan because he invited me to come talk at his when he his book came out in 2005. 2004. 2004, mm-hmm. he invited me to come give a talk. We didn't know each other. I came in there, I, 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 you know, I hadn't met him. I read the book, and I thought I was going to give a rational, calm presentation, but I found myself just being overcome with emotion, and I said many ugly things about him and the book and called, accused him of in bad faith and cited all these radical gay writers and said that this is what his real agenda mm-hmm. was. It was an un... Uh, not a... It was not my best day, hmm. and uh, so. <clears throat> but why? Uh, why do you? Why do you think it worked that emotion? I don't know. I still don't know. I haven't read just, anything about. Just that. kind of poured out. Mm-hmm. I called him the next day. I said I was sorry. I said I really regret having acted this way, and uh, he was like, "Oh, okay." Uh, <laughs> I, I've been in Washington a long time, and I'd never gotten a call from someone saying, "I'm sorry, I was intemperate." You had emotional that wasn't my best <laughs> Well, so I mean, so what's striking to me is, I mean, I just want to establish this before. So, so my understanding, I want to make sure I get this right, David. That you said that you were formed by the civil rights movement, and early on, to the extent that you saw marriage as a human rights issue, 
um, probably before you really had started thinking about gay marriage, it was your conviction that children have a right to know and be cared for the two parents who brought them into this world, and that society should support that as much as possible. With that, yeah, the the the, the um, my big idea was that children really needed their fathers, and that when you had a situation where half of the children in the country were not growing up with their fathers, that was a big problem. And the way to strengthen fatherhood is to strengthen marriage, and that. Um, uh, because marriage is kind of the pathway to effective fatherhood for men. Mm-hmm. And if you look anthropologically at the marriage institution, the central thing that it does for society, the reason society cares about marriage, is that it brings together the various dimensions of parenthood. You know, there's, mm-hmm. you can be a legal parent, you can be a biological parent, and you can be a social parent. Marriage is the only institution that unifies those three. You say it's the most pro-child institution. It's the most pro-child institution. So that was my uh, uh, song. That was what I just woke up every day to say. That was what I got out, you know, that was what meant the most to me. But the thing is, um, you know, what's interesting as I read the two of you across time, I mean, Jonathan, the idea that marriage is a bedrock of civilization um, that it's good, that it's honored and encouraged by religious and moral traditions, is your strong is also your is, is different emphasis, but has always been also your strongest argument for gay marriage. Yeah, David and I had this cobra mongoose relationship partly because we were coming from the same place. I had covered economic policy um, in Washington in the '80s and began to listen to a growing number of people who were saying. The problems of poverty and crime and inequality and fragile societies are largely tracing back to family breakup. Um, And I became a marriage advocate, actually, before I became a gay marriage advocate, Mm -hmm. because I began to see that that this institution is how we form and create the many societies on which the larger societies depend. So along comes Andrew Sullivan in 1992, I guess it was. I hadn't given a thought to gay marriage because it wasn't on the radar. It seemed outlandish at that point. And the minute I read that article, I said, I I knew that's it. That's the answer for the gay community, which is struggling with all the same kinds of problems you see in any community which doesn't have family and marriage. And this can strengthen marriage. Here we have new recruits to this institution. It's going to help shore the thing up. Uh, I saw a win-win. And that's how I came out of it. But, but at the same values, it's guiding David. And you have also said, so what t- to remind me the title of your book, Gay Marriage, Why It's Good. Why it's good. This I know. This okay, is a softball know question. Why it's good for gays, <laughs> good for straights, and good for America. All right. And you have said that as you went out talking to audiences, the people you ended up lecturing about the value of marriage as an institution were the straight people <laughs> in the audience. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you straight people out there, I mean... You broke it. You're going to have to fix it. We didn't break it. Um, you just haven't had enough time yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll work on that. So I have to say, my, you know. my favorite New Yorker cartoon about this was the clearly the old married couple sitting reading, and the wife says to the husband, um, oh, look, gay people will be allowed to get married now. And the husband says, oh, dear, haven't those people suffered enough already? <laughs> Well, that's what, that's what Irving Kristol said when he heard about it. He said, let them have it. They won't like it. <laughs> but, I mean, you guys are going to have to fix it. And we can actually, I believe, help fix it by trying to set good examples and creating more social capital 
and more marriages for society. But in order for you to fix it, you're going to have to realize that this is not just a private contract between two individuals. When I talk to young people in college campuses, they all think marriage is, you know, it's, two, it's a thing two people do, and if they need a piece of paper from the state, that's just a convenience. And I tell them, no, 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 no. Maybe you have to be gay to see this. <laughs> what it's like to be excluded from a community and all the tools that go with this. But this is an institution. This is a commitment that two people make, not just with each other, but with their community. And that commitment is to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, till health, and health, till death do we part. That's a promise you as a couple are giving to care for each other and your children forever to your whole community. And the community has a stake in it. And that's what we gay people want. We want to be married in the eyes of community, in that web of family. Well, but may I remind you that you may be able to do all those good things, but there's one thing you can't do. And you, we've had this discussion so many times, I'm sure you could answer it for me. But one thing you can't do is if you, if you have children, you can't be a home where the, that child is being raised by the mother and father whose bodies created the child. That's the one thing you can't do. Correct. What you can do is you can adopt the, you can adopt the child, which I support gay adoption, as you know, or you can bring a child into the home through... Um, a previous heterosexual relationship, which makes the gay relationship something a close, akin to step-family formation with all the attendant problems that we know from the literature of step-families, or even more problematically, you can use third-party assistance in procreation, which means that by definition, the child can never know at least one of his or her genitors, his or her parents. So um, I accept... Uh, all the things you say about, especially you, you know, and people who are who are approaching the issue like you, we can look. We let, let us in. We can strengthen this institution. We have a higher level of idealism than a lot of you straight people. I hear it all. I really do. But there's issue of filiation of the protection of the child by uniting these three strands of of the parent relationship, the biological, the legal, and the social, that cannot be done in a same-sex relationship. And so the reason I was against gay marriage for all those years that we were arguing about it um, was primarily that reason. And, you know, uh, I know we've had many discussions about how important all that is in the scheme of things or, or you know, but that's, for me, that's been the nut of it. Uh, yeah, and I never got that. I mean, yeah. it seemed to me we're infertile couples, like millions of straight infertile couples, and no one says they shouldn't get married because they can't provide a biological mother and father. I didn't. No, no, I didn't say that. So I, I didn't, no, 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 I didn't. I, I don't. I don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to relitigate. All right. I'm, I'm just <laughs> making the broader point that that I heard your argument. I never really understood it. From my point of view, it's simpler than that. Kids need married mothers and fathers, and the way you get that in society is by encouraging everyone to get married. And I thought we were contributing to that. So we never really communicated about that point. We never, I don't think we ever crossed that synapse. I mean, you, um, in your book, Jonathan, you wrote, you were, oh, no, this was, this was interesting. David, you invited Jonathan to write the introduction to your book, The Future of Marriage, in 2007, which was, which was a case against gay marriage. It's better than that. 
He wrote the book. I wrote a very critical, respectful, review. critical book review. And so one day I got a call from Blankenhorn, who I'm starting at this point to change my mind about. Um, because We got of, off to such a good start. <laughs> <laughs> because at a book talk, he, at, at a conservative think tank, the first thing he says talking about his book is, I believe in the equal dignity of homosexual love. No gay marriage opponent had ever said that before, and no other gay marriage opponent has ever said it since, and it floored me. So I'm starting to think, well, maybe this guy's different. And then he calls me one day and says, so the paperback of my book's coming out. I want to take your highly critical review and use it as the foreword. And I'm going... Um, sorry, static on the line. I thought I just... Right, so you did write the forward, and, and in that forward, you still... It was a version of that critical review. You said, for example, you know, we agree that... Oh, we agree that heterosexuals, not homosexuals, determine, will determine marriage's fate <laughs> and have handled matrimony pretty poorly without any gay help. But you also said, <laughs> we agree that children, on average, and you stress the on average, do better when raised by their biological mother and father. You, you also say something, um, you, you say this a lot, marriage creates kin. And I wonder if that's a kind of response to, to David's um, discomfort. I think it is. Um, I'm not sure we have a difference in, in kind here so much as of emphasis, but what marriage does, it's unique as an institution. It's not, by the way, the only thing that cares for children, although it's better than other arrangements. But marriage takes two people who are complete legal strangers. They can be from different classes and cultures and society. They don't even need to speak the same language. In a lot of places, they've never even met each other on the day of marriage. And it turns them into next of kin. And that's not just legal. More important, that's social. That means for the rest of their lives, their job is to drop everything and care for the other person. Also to care for kids when they have kids, but 50% or more of marriages don't have kids in the house. You're caring for that other person. And by creating family, you are creating the first line of defense against depression and suicide and poverty and unemployment and all the things which otherwise social workers and community and charity and public welfare have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so creating kin, to me, is what it's all about. And I was someone who had grown up thinking I would be familyless mm-hmm. in a community that was familyless. And then these people come along and say, well, you can't have kids, so you shouldn't be able to have legal families. And I'm going, well, that's just crazy. That doesn't make sense. So, David, um, you, yeah, you have concerns and you, you have discomfort, and that makes you like a lot of people, um, a lot of good people. Um, uh, but you did, you did have a change of heart and a change of approach. And I wonder um, if you would talk about how that happened You know, I, um, <clears throat> I'm, it's hard for me to put my finger on it because it's a little bit like, um, it's like you're, you're knitting, a, you're repairing a sock. You just keep knitting, you know, keep repairing and repairing and repairing and adding a little here and adding a little there. And one day you realize that you have a different sock, but you never set out to make a different sock. You just kept fiddling around. So for me, it was a process of, thinking this and thinking that and having this conversation and having that conversation. And one day I woke up and I realized I had a different sock. But I had not set out. By the time, by the time someone challenged me to say whether or not I had changed my mind, I really realized I had already without really 
being conscious about it. So some of it, I think, if I had to make an intellectual argument, um, I would say I have a stronger, I grew in my feeling of the importance of accepting gay and lesbian people as equal members of the society. I grew in my recognition of the prejudice that has existed and continues to exist, including in me. I uh, came to realize that the radicals that wrote the books about queer theory and so forth were different than many of the ordinary gay and lesbian couples who were just living their lives and weren't that different in most respects than and than heterosexual couples. Um, I saw an emerging consensus in the society, particularly among the elites and younger people, that was meaningful to me. Um, I was a marriage advocate, and I saw after 10 or whatever many years of fighting this issue that the trends in the society at large were not improving. You know, we're in this funny situation. We've got, what, 2 or 3% of the population, a tiny number of Americans who are sincerely saying, let us in this institution. This means everything to us. Meanwhile, the vast majority of Americans are exiting the institution quickly, like the last person out, please hit the lights. We are out of here. If you go to middle America now, blue-collar America, working-class America, you will find marriage in shambles. Shambles. So it's weird. It's like the people that want in, we say no, and the people that are already in, like we are just rushing out. And I was there, Mr. Anti-Gay Marriage. How is this helping strengthen what really matters to me? And the answer is, it wasn't. It wasn't. If fighting gay marriage was going to get heteros to recommit to the institution, we would have seen a sign by now, I think. (laughs) But it wasn't happening. And, And the other thing, and then I'll stop, is that, you know, I wanted to have a debate about marriage. I wanted to debate the very thing that Jonathan's still saying. He doesn't quite, oh, what are you really talking about this? You know, well, it mattered a lot to me, and I wanted to have a big debate about it. It's not happening. Most heterosexual Americans believe that marriage, uh, as you you point out, the the notion of marriage is private ordering. The notion of marriage is just someone you love. I I mean, I think this is clear, but I don't want to spell it. For neither one of you is the the case for marriage about two people loving each other, just falling in love. Well, that's the reason we were able to, I think, develop an intellectual respect and, and, and and then I think a friendship was because we both had that fundamental conviction of wanting to strengthen the institution mm-hmm. of marriage. And the other thing I'll say, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get schmaltzy about it, but the truth is... Oh, go ahead. There's the, <laughs> there's the intellectual, you know, you think, you read, you, 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 know, you sit in your study and you try to think about the correct view. But the truth is that I probably wouldn't have changed my mind without knowing Jonathan personally because it was the personal relationship, you know. And I used to think, well, oh, gee, what a lame thing. You know, your friendships are influencing your thinking. 
But, I, uh, I, you know, I, now I think it's okay because I see, I saw it happen to me and I realized that I had some, you know, you build up, you build up this, you build up a kind of a barriers of belief in theory and, and, and it keeps the other people out. And so you talk about them. You have theories about them. You can explain their lives to them, but you never really talk to them about and see it from their point of view. So for me, as this guy from the South, older guy, you know, and hadn't known many gay people. So it was a, it was a meaningful thing to just, and, 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 John, and after being very aggressive and abusive, you know, he responded with uh, kindness. And, and like, uh, well, you know, Maybe we could talk a little bit. So we, we, we ended up writing some articles together. We ended up co-chairing a, a project that we called Achieving Disagreement, where people from both sides bring together. We co-chaired that. And so, you know, it sounds lame, but, but honestly, it was the personal relationships with uh, John and a few other people that kind of caused me to say, Try something new here, you know? Try a new approach. You know, it's okay to change your mind on this and try a new, uh, try a new, try a new strategy, you know? Um, I think this is the moment when we should collect cards. If you have a question, go ahead and write it down. People will come through and get that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, the future of marriage. We're at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. I'm with David Blankenhorn, president of the Institute for American Values, and Jonathan Rausch, a journalist and guest scholar at the Brookings Institution. Jonathan, you um, have written something which I think is pretty unique, that you also see this consensus, and you say that in a sense, gay the, the, the idea of gay rights has majority status now in terms of its support in the population. And that this changes, that this, this puts a new burden of responsibility on gay members of society. You said, we have won the central argument and we must change. Um, bend, that, 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 that now is the time to bend towards accommodation when you can live with the costs. Yeah, this is my other more recent campaign and to be honest I don't expect to be as successful with it as we've been with marriage um, but I'm trying anyway um, <laughs> well, something... not, I'm screwed man <laughs> yeah <laughs> here's one for you David um, so gay people were the victims of majority intolerance for many many decades and public opinion in America is a ferocious thing Tocqueville wrote about it tyranny of the majority he called it Something very, very important happened around 2009. Uh, the Gallup poll for the first time showed a tie in people saying homosexual relationships were morally acceptable with people saying they were not morally acceptable. And the lines have now crossed. There's now, I think it's like a nine or ten point gap of a solid majority of Americans saying it's okay to be gay. So this is new. This means we're now the moral majority. This means the burden of proof is now on the other side. And this means it's going to be tempting for gay people to press our advantage and try to use the law um, to 
to make it difficult for people who want to preserve religious traditions that are anti-gay to do so. And we have good reason for that. We have suffered very directly and very concretely and quite often with our lives from religious bigotry. It's not to say all religion is bigotry, but it's happened and we know it. So it is very tempting for us to say, let's drive this out of society altogether. All forms of discrimination, whether religious or not, should be illegal. And I'm saying to gay people, no, we've got to share the country. There is a thing called the First Amendment, religious liberty. We'll get squashed like bugs on the windshield if we try to go against religious liberty. But more important, we want to be in a live-and-let-live society where no one gets treated as a prisoner of conscience and feels the need to stay in the closet frightened because of what they believe. That's what we fought against all those years long before marriage, and that's what we will continue to fight against. And that's why we need to be champions of all reasonable protections for religious people who may not agree with us and may not want to associate with us, but we need to let them share this country with us. And you have also called out the danger of throwing around charges of bigotry promiscuously. Yeah, well, at least not promiscuously. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are bigots, uh, and they're out there, and I've encountered them, and I can tell you the stories. Um, but the great revelation to me, Krista, of being involved in gay marriage since now 1996, when I first came out for it, excuse the expression, is that most Americans, um, even most anti-gay Americans, are not fundamentally bigoted or hostile. Um, they're not evil, they're blind, and our job is to help them see. It doesn't help to call them bigots even when they are, but usually they're not. Usually they're not. Usually they need to understand this better and go through something like a process, kind of like what David's been through. It doesn't mean they'll come out where we come out. Mm-hmm. But you would be amazed at, at how open Americans can be over time and how responsive the conscience of this country is. It's a good point. I want to talk a little bit about this word civility and what you've both learned about it, because, I mean, you're, we're driving at that now. I mean, David, you're in the unique position of having been on both sides of being labeled. Having thoroughly angered everyone <laughs> at least once. <laughs> um, you, you wrote on your website and your blog about the relationship between civility and doubt. Mm. I'd love for you to say some more about that. Mm. It's, it's funny that you would ask that. It's the thing I've been thinking about most in the last several months, more than any other topic. And I think that doubt and civility are friends. They go together kind of like you know coffee and cream. They're, they're, they're partners. Um, I, I think it's possible for people who have no doubts about things to be civil, because I, I know such people, and I think it's possible for people who are see both sides of things to be uncivil. But there is a general rule that doubt, in, and by doubt, by civility, I mean treating the other person the way you would want them to treat you. And by civility, I, I just mean uh, basically, um, uh, uh, I mean, and by doubt, I mean believing that you may not be right. Even when your position is passionately held. You wrote this, what I need as a doubting person is the wisdom of the other. 
See, because if I don't have any doubt, I don't need you. I should be nice to you out of manners, but I don't need a relationship with you. Mm-hmm. I may want you to be available to be lectured by me so that you can come to the correct view. And I may want to treat you politely for that reason, but I don't really need you. If I have doubt, healthy, good doubt, as I grow older, I grow in doubt, and that's good. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a healthier way to be. And if I am not sure that I have the full truth of the matter, I need you. Civility allows me to have a relationship with you. It feeds me what I need. If I have no doubts, I might treat you nicely out of manners, but I don't really have a need except to maybe convert you to the correct view. So I, and and I've been just so... Because, you know, when you change your when you're in public, when you're in the public eye and you change your mind, well, that's viewed as a sign of weakness. Right. And then if you um, express doubt about something, that's viewed as a sign of weakness today, especially in this hyper-partisan, everybody wants to be tough, tough tough-minded, get tough, roll up your sleeves, get tough, fight, 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 you know? Who are these people we're fighting, you know, with all the time? But, But the idea that you have doubt... I don't know. It's like, you got to shut me up. I mean, I'm, I, it's the thing I've most been thinking about lately, mm-hmm. the relationship of doubt on the one hand and the life of the mind on the other. It, it's really... And what it's what you try to do in these conversations, yeah, I think. Yeah, well, you're helping. You're, we're creating this together. You, what you are not saying is that you don't... That this is about having a robust intellectual life, right? It's not about not having robust thoughts well, it's and not positions. about being it's, vanilla and saying, right. oh, I agree with you, and I just don't want to say anything you would disagree with. I mean... It's never been a problem with you, Dan. Never been, are, are you <laughs> either, Okay, but man. everybody doesn't know him as well as you <laughs> No, you know, it's, we, we, we used to... We called what we did achieving disagreement. Yeah, I like that. I See, like because that. if you... Ch- it's, it's easy to have a false disagreement. I can just say, oh, you're a bad person, you're stupid, you're, a, you're some kind of religious zealot or something. I can just have a belief. But to actually know where we disagree requires effort from you and from me. We have to have a relationship to do that. And part of achieving disagreement means identifying areas of common ground. It means finding out where we agree. Otherwise, how do you know where you disagree mm-hmm. if you don't also know where you agree? And that, I'll tell you, in, in today's world of hyperpolarization and, the, and the, the, the sheer idiocy that is our public debate on most days, 98% of the time, you, you know, you you know, the heart just cries out for this kind of, you know, serious effort to achieve disagreement. Could I just say there's another element of this which is important to me, and I think is for me what started pushing me in your direction is when I believe there's an element of patriotism about this. I believe that there are higher values ultimately than what each of us wants as individuals. Some of you want Obama, some of you want Romney, some of you want something else. But I discovered in you, I thought, someone who understood that you're a multi-value person, that as strongly as you felt about marriage, that you felt even more strongly that we have to share the country and that it is our duty as citizens to find ways to live together. And that that's a higher value still. I equate that with a form of patriotism. When I see someone who won't compromise, I see someone betraying the core 
the core purposes of our, our Constitution, which is to force compromise. Right. That's what James Madison was doing. Exactly. And I saw in you someone who was willing to say, you know, being right about marriage is not as important to me as making a pact with my fellow Americans on the other side so that we can share this we can country. We can live together. And, yeah. I, I you know, and, and there's you, nothing soft and squishy about that. Right. It comes across that way sometimes, but I do think it, I, I agree, it's, it, I think it's a kind of patriotism. And you write, you know, you know uh, John has written uh, in, for gay audiences, you know, and said things that are, that like, you know, he, like he said, like it's time to like give these religious people a bit of a break and not press our advantage. Right. It's time, I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but he says this, he says, you know, sometimes a, a sweeping court decision to impose gay marriage is maybe not the best way to achieve the goal. And it's, I can only imagine the criticism that comes your way, you know, from your own, you know, from your own community about that. But it's, it's a, it's a, I, I think on our best days, we both sometimes try for that, try, try for that a little bit. You know, this, this matter, this idea of compromise came up in this discussion that I had at Brookings with Alice Rosalind and Pete Domenici, which was a, bit, was a very different kind of discussion. But I, and I felt later that I hadn't followed it up enough because the, the, the notion that compromise is built into successful politics. But how do you, how can we think about, and maybe I think you've just helped me do this, John, how do we think about compromise and integrity going together? Right, that that compromise is not a relinquishing of integrity. Maybe it's the way doubt and integrity go together. I think of it as duty. I think there are higher things than being right, um, and I think it's time for compromisers. By compromisers, by the way, I don't mean people who give up on their core values and roll over and, and get rolled by the bitter partisans on the other side. I just mean people who, at the end of the day, say, you know what, I'm not going to walk out of here with everything I wanted. Um, I think it's time for us to get a little bit more uncompromising in our defense of compromise. I think this... <laughs> Somebody's I mean, tweeting that right now as we speak. I think, I think we should understand and say this is a matty, matter of patriotic duty to our country. And that when you see someone who's out there saying, as, for example a Midwestern Senate candidate, did my idea of compromise is the other guy's going to agree with me, and everyone goes, yes. Yeah. Some people in that audience should go, boo. You are not being a patriotic American yeah, it's not the, it's if you not are the, betraying the founding premise of this uh-huh. country. Yeah, it's not the trend of the times. No. It's not the trend of the times. The, the, in terms of the trend of the times, I mean, something that you've both experienced, I know, and that is the opposite of this, is uh, not... Um, not opposing someone's argument, but uh, attributing all kinds of inner psychological motives to them. Like, like, you know, saying that you're working with someone's motives, which you can't possibly really ever know about another person, even the person closest to you. Um, And I know that, David, when you uh, wrote your piece in the New York Times... You know, there was. A, I read some of this. There was a lot of inner psychological analysis of you. Yeah, everybody knew about me. They knew more about me than I did. Uh, what was really interesting about that is people. The main, um, the main criticism was that I'd caved into pressure. That I wanted to. I'd been beaten down by the by the ugly accusations of people like Jonathan and 
his pro-gay marriage friends, and I was just so tired of being called a bigot and so tired of being called names, and I wanted to be in good with the New York Times and, and be with the trendy the trendy crowd that has nice goes to, out to nice restaurants and so forth. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and we do. <laughs> We're so stylish. Uh, so, but, you know, the, the truth of it is, as far as I'm able to, you know, you're never a good judge of yourself. But as far as I'm able to see, it was much more the positive relationships rather than the bullying. There was a fair amount of attempts to bully. And there's a fair amount of attempts on the, anti, on the anti-gay marriage side to bully, too. But for me personally, it was the positive relationships that caused me to change my mind about this, not being, not being called names uh, in, in, in the newspapers. Hmm. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, the future of marriage. We're at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. I'm with David Blankenhorn, president of the Institute for American Values, and Jonathan Rausch, a journalist and guest scholar at the Brookings Institution. And now I'd like to uh, invite Larry Jacobs, if he's ready, (laughs) to the podium. Um, He's going to moderate questions from the audience, both in the room and online. And Larry is director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance here at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Thank you very much, Krista. With the separation of church and state, is there any validity for people of faith to contribute to wider society debate with religion-based arguments? I guess that's for me. Uh, Of course. Absolutely. Uh, Religion is an important source of insight and morality, and it um, it should inform the views of the debate um, I think it makes us all richer. It's, it's another form of diversity. I know I welcome it. And I think anyone who tries to stigmatize religion and not belonging in public debate, you know, need to be rebuked not only by me, but, but a fellow named James Madison would have had something to say about that. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, the patron saint of the Tea Partiers, and Alexander Hamilton, the patron saint of the, you know, Obama, larger government people, neither of them was really around when the Constitution was made. It was done by James Madison, and he believed his founding principles were religious liberty and political compromise and freedom of speech, freedom of conscience. Uh, And those things go together. Thank you. We've got several questions here that are struggling with the religious basis uh, for uh, gay marriage. One question asked, how is gay marriage consummated. Physically, men don't fit with men, and women don't fit with women. Um, Did you say there are several questions like that? (laughs) That's an example. (laughs) Well, um, gay marriages are consummated by gay love, by gay relationships, by gay sex, by the fact that we will be there for each other when we're sick, by the fact that in the days when we couldn't get married, some of my friends held their shivering, dying, wasting partners, held them to their bodies as human blankets to keep them warm enough so they wouldn't convulse, and did that for weeks on end until the end came. 
when the families very often would shun these, these people because they were gay and because they had AIDS. Um, this is how marriage is consummated. A question from online. Should the American church begin to view the definition of a legal marriage as separate from the definition of a religious marriage? <coughs> Me again? or Yeah, David, what do you think? I, I'm struggling with that question. Mm-hmm. What do you... I think the answer is no. I think one of the reasons marriage is, has its unique binding property that you and I agree is so important, bringing fathers and mothers and kids together, but also bringing husbands and wives together for a long time. It is really hard to get a guy to settle down with one woman for a very long time, and marriage does that better than anything else. The reasons for that are a lot of things, but one is that marriage is this hybrid it is legal. Particularly in the U.S. I mean, Particularly I, in the U.S. I don't but think we could imitate the pattern of some other countries. Right. Some other have... countries cut it apart. But in the U.S., the magic of marriage is it is legal and yeah. social and cultural and religious. You get married in front of not only um, the, the magistrate, the state, but most people get married religiously in the presence of their faith community. Yeah. And they make a vow to God. Yeah. And if we separate marriage from, could be all artificial the, from the religious to, and cultural yeah. thickness that gives it that depth, we will weaken it. Yeah, I tend to agree. But yeah. Jonathan, you have talked about the importance of this being a, a gradual, imperfect process, that it's important that states, that, that even though it's messy, you think it's good, that there's not some kind of decree from on high from the Supreme Court or the federal government, um, that this gets worked out kind of place by place. I wonder if that, I mean, to me, that seems a little bit in contrast to, to what you just said. I'm not sure I, I get the contrast, but, mm-hmm. but my feeling on this is that the courts have their place in defending civil rights is a very, very important part of that place. And I'm not one of these people who says courts should always stay out of everything. Courts should do their job. Um, but we get married in the eyes of our community, not just the law. And mm-hmm. courts can't give us that. What we want as gay people is to be viewed as married by our communities and faith communities. And I worry that jumping in prematurely with some kind of national mandate will set, up, set back the real process of institutionalizing gay marriage, which is convincing people, showing them that we're the real thing, that we mean it, that we can be married, and getting their communities behind us. Um, I'll be happy. I don't know how many years it will be, but the time will come when most gay couples will be being married in churches and synagogues and mosques. Do you know if that consensus, that, that Gallup consensus, is for gay ma- marriage in every form, or is it um, civil unions? Because I, I think a lot of people feel sure about civil unions and, kind of, uh, and do leave that question about marriage um, in religious institutions open for another discussion. Well... Just for clarity, the the Gallup consensus I referred to is on the fundamental question of moral approval or disapproval of homosexual relations, which underlies everything else. Mm -hmm. That's ahead of the change on marriage. Mm -hmm. Marriage is is lagging somewhat behind that, and some polls are now showing majorities are for it. I'm not really sure I believe that. Uh, But it's a slow process, and you know it should be. This is a fundamental institution. I am a Burkean social conservative. Organic social change is usually the best kind if you can do it. And I think we can in this case. I think we can grow it. 
instead of imposing it. And I because think it tends to be longer lasting, it doesn't provoke the possibility of the backlash. Well, you're probably looking for a time when the term gay marriage just drops out of the vocabulary, right? Mm. Just marriage. Just marriage, yeah. I sometimes think uh, we should just pause, like all of us, wherever we are on the issue, and just dwell on the fact that this is a very big deal. It's a civilizational shift to say we are reconsidering the definition of marriage. And just let that sink in. <laughs> yeah, Before that's we... something I had to learn. Um, when I came into this, you know, if you're gay and you grow up without marriage or prospect of family, it's obvious we just want to do what they're doing. And it's humiliating, the idea that you have to go around to all these straight people and say, oh, please, Mr. Straight Person, can I get married too? Can I be like you someday? I mean, we have a right to this. We're entitled to this. How dare they stop it? It, it took me a long time to get my mind around the notion that in the straight world, this is not, you know, a, an obvious thing. This is a huge shift in the way they're thinking about marriage for 3,000 years. And I think we need to respect that. Yeah. I think societies have to ingest change at a, at a rate they can sustain. Yeah. That was something I had to learn. Yeah. You've both talked about children as an important element in the discussion about gay marriage. What about marriage without children? Isn't there a value for two people who are involved in a homosexual relationship to be committed and not have children? Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, sure. I, I mean, I know we both agree that, that I know we both agree on that. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. <laughs> That was an easy one. Let's ask some more harder questions, Larry. Come on, you're a political scientist. You can do better. Well, I'm respecting the community. Um, David, there's an interest in uh, consequences for your shift in position. How has your change of heart affected your organization and your life's work? Have you paid a price? Well, we've lost a lot of about half of our board and about half of our funding. And um, so uh, there's a process now of just having to uh, rebuild the thing because um, there was there was just a lot of belief on the part of a lot of supporters of the organization that this was just some place they could not go. They could not they could not uh, support an organization whose leader had 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 said this. So you know it's a free country and people should do with their money. That, in their time, what they want to do. So I, I don't bear them any uh, ill will. But um, but that's been a pretty pretty big consequence. And um, and um, um, not entirely unexpected. I didn't expect it to be quite this severe. But I think it just shows what we were talking about before. This, gosh, it's a it's just a very um, Particularly for, um, particularly for, um, I think Catholics, evangelical Christians. You're probably up to half the country now. Um, this is a very, um, it's almost an existential question, mm-hmm. and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. But but those have been those have been some of the consequences. And there have been a lot of people who've just called out of the blue. People who uh, who uh, told me several years ago that I was just a, um, 
uh, you know, I had an old friend from my community organizing days who, when I was being attacked in the papers, Frank Rich at the New York Times wrote some articles saying I was a an idiot and a homophobe, and he was, called me up. He wrote me a letter. Was that and during said, Prop 8? Or? During Prop 8, uh-huh. after the testimony. And this guy wrote back and said, oh, I used to think you were a good guy, and now I realize you're just America's most famous bigot. This was a longtime friend of mine, mm. longtime friend. And um, my reply was not uh, repeatable in a family newspaper. But um, uh, and then and then a couple of weeks ago, he writes me a letter, says, oh, so, you know, like, oh, you get to rejoin the human race. Thank you so much. <laughs> but right. most people had most people, you know, a lot of new people have called up and said, thank you. So there's been a mix. Yeah. Jonathan, David was converted by you to support gay marriage. <laughs> He was? <laughs> okay, how is, I guess that's the headline writer. <laughs> that shorter right. version of the story. Yeah, yeah, that's right. How, how has his thinking influenced the way you've approached this issue? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. it hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Mission accomplished. You just, you've just uh, yeah. converted Right. Me. We don't that's procreate. It. We that, recruit. Yeah. <laughs> You get the toaster. I get the toaster. Um, People are so clever. I know. (laughs) I know. I got a gold star in my meeting at the World Homosexual (laughs) Council. Um, From David, uh, David has not succeeded in changing my core beliefs on marriage. Um, I still am where we were early in the debate on that. He has succeeded in educating me about a way to engage this issue and other issues um, that otherwise was completely elusive in this debate. Um, He has shown me that it is possible, really possible, to be against gay marriage, but not at all even the slightest bit against gay people. I did not believe that until I met David, It isn't to say that all gay marriage opponents were bigots, far from it, but that there was an element of revulsion against homosexuality embedded, at least implicitly, in most, if not all, of the arguments against gay marriage. And David showed me that that is wrong. He is not anti-gay in his heart. And he showed me that by saying one day that he publicly, that he believed in the equal dignity of homosexual love. And again, no one else has said that. No one else will, by the way, because they don't. For a lot of gay marriage opponents, that's what this is about. Those couples are not like us, and they're not as good. That's an element here. But he's done it in other ways, too. Um, He came out for civil unions. Um, He wrote an op-ed with a co-writer in North Carolina saying that because a referendum there banned not only gay marriage but also civil unions that it ought to be opposed because it was too mean to the gay people. It was too vindictive to take away everything instead of just defending marriage. Other people haven't done that either. They've all said, well, I'm against gay marriage and anything that would lead to it, you know, insurance benefits, forget it, could lead to marriage. Um, David, to that extent, has kind of restored, helped bolster my faith in, in a third way. Assuming gay, gay marriage becomes the law of the land, how should a public sex education teacher 
who conscientiously disagrees with gay marriage deal with the issue? Is he or she at risk of termination of employment for following their conscience? Um, about a, I don't know, I forgot when it was, a year or so ago, uh, Jonathan approached me about possibly doing an, an article together where we would say, we don't agree on gay marriage, but we can agree on certain things. And what about um, what about civil unions? Uh, I forget the a whole piece, but the big part of it was, um, as John said before, not coming down so hard on people such as these teachers. And so while I don't, I'm interested to know what you think about the specific example that the viewer, the listener raises. I, I know that we've, you know, my sense of it is that we, we, one of the things we both can agree on is that there should be, um, it's not. It's all. It's not. It's never black and white. It's all. A, it's all a negotiation. But you can't just stomp all over people's rights of conscience. I don't know. What do you think about that specific example? Um, well, teachers are a special case because they're hired to teach a curriculum, yeah. and the school board controls that curriculum. And the school boards are going to make these decisions, and they won't all make the same decision. Right. And they shouldn't. Um, there are a lot of. Well, there's some. They're not a lot, but there are some people who are teachers who would rather not teach biology, uh, sorry, theory of evolution, because it's against their principles. And they're told, well, look, if you want to teach biology as opposed to chemistry, you need to teach evolution because it's in the curriculum. And we honor that. If a school board, however, says, you know what, we're going to try to help those people to avoid those situations, um, we should honor that, too. But, but remember, this does not need a one-size-fits-all solution. Right. One of the mistakes we make in this country is thinking everything has to be Getting the Constitution. Getting on the same page. <laughs> we all yeah. have to do the same thing at the yeah. same time. The Supreme Court's got to order it one-size-fits-all. And, of course, that's the wrong answer. The beauty of our system is that most of these decisions will be made at the state and local level by communities making them in their own way. Could you draw a general lesson from your relationship and its change over time? How do we restore useful and purposeful engagement in public dialogue? Uh, David will be happy to answer that question. (laughs) I I don't know why it is, but I think we're just at this moment in time where the public conversation is at a particularly low level of yeah. quality, the coarseness, the ugliness, the assumption of bad faith, the, the triviality, the sensationalism. Uh, I, I, I really think that so many people are aware of this. And I'd, I, it's one of the reasons that I got interested in the subject of doubt, because I think that we need, I think that we need to put in a good word for doubt, um, out there about not not being so certain that you're right. Um, um, uh, beyond that, I know it sounds small bore, but I do think that the, the, these kind of conversations where you try to dig a little bit deeper and to 
try to be more serious. It just in these small ways, you have a little affirming flame of something positive. And so a, a kind of modeling process. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a macro solution right now because I don't quite know where it comes from. I don't know where the ugliness at the macro, I, don't, I can't diagnose it really. I don't have a diagnosis. So all I really know is it's terrible. It's bad for the country. It's bad for our souls. And, and, and the only thing I can think of is just modeling it on a small scale, whenever you can, a different way of talking to one another. You know, you have some really interesting things going on on your site, the Institute for American Values, and your blog. We're the only blog in the country, I'm pretty sure, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, that invites people on both sides of the gay marriage issue, not just as commenters, but as bloggers as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, that has actually been an influence on me. Uh, I don't even, some of these people whose names I don't even know. And what is that? What's the web address for that? Familyscholars.org. And, you know, you have some, here's the guidance you give, bloggers and commentators. <laughs> I don't know if you wrote this. But again, in the, in, in, in the, in the context of being of the small things, right? Uh, here's the direction. Be rigorous, be powerful, be funny, but don't be mean. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a, it's really interesting. We've had a, a whole discussion on civility. We, we call it the civility discussion, and it sounds a little, you know, maybe boring. I know, but, I worry about civil conversations yeah, sounding boring, too. But it's been a really interesting discussion, and we talked about the different, what it means, you know, I've been wanting us to push deeper on civility because it seems to me that there are at least three levels. One level is be nice, just be polite. Um, um, But then what if you, um, another level is to uh, admit that there may be something you don't know. And then a third, uh, a third level, and this is the hardest Try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Try to actually see the world empathetically the way that the other person is seeing it. Sincerely make that effort. Hmm. Um, uh, Those, you know, be polite uh, and then uh, uh, don't, don't ascribe bad faith and then put yourself in the other person's shoes. And maybe we can cause the term civility you can't enforce this by the way the only thing you can really enforce is be nice be polite but what you really want Mm -hmm. what you really want in the conversation is the ability to say you know it seems like you're the other it seems like there's no possible way that i can even it's too you know what you say is too stupid for me to even respond to what you want is with that level of, of of pushing away you want to be able to say but i'm going to make an effort to see it the way you're looking at it. And mm-hmm. that's not a sign of me being a weak person. It's a sign of being a strong person. It's hard. You know, I've been in this debate for 16 years, and you, you get very angry. And um, I've worked very hard to try to master that, um, not infallibly. But this is a decision. I mean, you're asking what to do about this, and I'm with David I don't know, but I, I do know um, there are choices people make. There's, I think we have a seventh grade class here today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys are what, um, 12, 13, that kind of thing? We're really happy so, you're here. So you guys in high school, very soon now, 
and then even more in college, are going to start to be confronted with choices about how you're going to conduct yourself. And you'll be offered opportunities to write blog posts where, knowing very little about stuff, you start popping off and insulting people. Because that's really easy. All you have to do is imitate your adults. Yeah, all you have to do is imitate everyone else out there. But now and then you'll have the opportunity to stop yourself and say, now wait a minute, suppose I take the other person seriously. Suppose I take seriously the idea that I might be wrong. Suppose I try to inform myself and look at the world from the other person's point of view. That is really, really hard. But if you start doing that once or twice in high school, then you'll do it a little more often in college. And you, it'll inflect your life in a very different direction. And it doesn't take much of that to make a difference, in my opinion. I think we have a time for one more question. What, have I, what, what I've enjoyed about being gay is that as we couple up, we've defined how our relationships work. Why should I now adopt an institution and all its trappings that isn't working for the majority of Americans? <laughs> uh, Jonathan will be glad to answer that question. <laughs> First of all, it still does work for the vast majority of Americans, and it works much better than anything else, and that hasn't changed. Uh, What hasn't worked is that a lot of Americans are bailing out because we've made that very easy and cost-free, but it still works very well. There's tons of evidence, and one of the world's leading experts is sitting here to my left, that marriage, a good marriage makes you healthier and happier and better off financially. It's good for your kids, for your community, for yourself. Um, It is better. It is good for you. Um, Yes, one of the reasons marriage is good for you is that it does put constraints on your relationship and define how you conduct it by putting social expectations around it. You are no longer as free a person when you're married because you've made that commitment to the other person in society to be there for them no matter what. That is your job. Even if your name is President Barack Obama, if Michelle is in serious health jeopardy, you're getting the call and you're going to deal with it right then. Right. That's your job. Right. So that's a constraint. There are a lot of other constraints that come with marriage, and that's why it's important, and that's why we need it. Yeah. One more? Agreed. One more. Okay. David, this is for you, and it comes from our online audience. I'm looking for balance, and particularly to hear from people opposed to gay marriage. Who should I look to for smart representation from the other side? Well, I think that over the past um, 10 or 15 years, there have been, um, you know, a number of of books and articles, and uh, the most recent of which is a book co-authored by um, John Corvino and Maggie Gallagher, John Corvino being a pro-same-sex marriage uh, gay man, philosophy professor, and Maggie Gallagher being the founder of the National Organization for Marriage. And they wrote a book called Debating Same-Sex Marriage. And, um, I, you know, I, I think a person could start with, with a book such as that because they, it's, a, it's, a, it's a back-and-forth iterative process where they say, here's my position, here's my position. And um, uh, the... The, the, the anti-gay marriage um, argument ha- has not, it, it has not, uh, in, in my in my view, is, is 
was never um, it, it, it got what what happened to what happened to the I'm not sure if you quite see it this way, but what happened to the debate was it really became about acceptance of gay and lesbian people and couples. It really became a so-called gay rights issue. As be- opposed to really about gay marriage? As, a, as opposed to the marriage part of it, for different reasons, didn't really, uh, didn't really rise to prominence in the debate. It was overshadowed by a narrative of the civil rights a civil rights or a human rights issue for gay and lesbian people. And so it was a terrible frustration for me when I was trying to argue against gay marriage that, you know, that that was the case. But ha- having, and there I think a number of reasons why that's true, in part because heterosexual America is rapidly changing its views of marriage oh, to right. be a question of private ordering. Unlike... John Rausch's position, unlike my own position, but that we're both against the trend line of heterosexual America. And, uh, but there has been, there have been arguments have been laid out. I, I think I would start with the Gallagher Corvino book and Andrew Sullivan edited a book a few years ago. I think it was called Gay Marriage Pro and Con. And Jonathan is a lot of your writings has been have been engagements with this, so they're good things to read. I, I don't know. <clears throat> I think that's the best answer I can give. Start with those, but also realize that in some ways, um, see, in some ways, you're just dealing with you're dealing with goods in conflict. You're, you're, what you're dealing with is this fundamental need on the one hand to to advance the human rights of a group of people who have been denied them on a broad level. And on the other hand, you have a consideration of the historic role in marriage and the protection of children. Those two things are are not hmm. always completely resolvable. They, they're in tension with one another. And that argument, I think, has, which is at least my position, I think it is... V- I still feel that there's not quite, we never quite got there in the public debate mm-hmm. with with this. It's been framed in this slightly different way. But so, um, Jonathan, do you? You know, I know that you probably would have said previously that David Blankenhorn was the most intelligent um, person making a case against gay marriage. Do, I mean, the best thing to this day is still his 2007 book. Is it 2007? Um, which is the future of marriage, marriage, uh, is is still the best anti-gay marriage argument. He's just saying that because it's got a good preface. (laughs) That's right. Um, Well, so I think this is a messy and difficult and important place to end, and that's that's fitting because this is a messy and difficult and important subject. Yeah. you know, I'm really aware, uh, even when these numbers come out, you know, there's, I recently saw the Pew saying two-thirds of Democrats are now, now support gay marriage. That means one-third of Democrats don't, don't support gay marriage. So we are not on the same page on this subject. And, and at the same time, um, you know, this anguish that you've both described of people watching how we navigate 
territory like this. That anguish I feel in myself. It was, you know, the impetus behind this series. I, I bet everyone out here feels it. Yeah. And um, I think this has been, you know, I, part of the idea behind this, and I, I want to thank you for so rising to the occasion, is that if we can talk about this uh, in a way that has integrity and kindness and depth, um, we should be able to figure out how to talk about a lot of other things, too. So um, I want to thank Jonathan Rausch and David Blankenhorn and everybody who was with us online and all of you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.